Anywhere study were put up, it's new creation in Christ and the cross. Why did it have to happen? Because um, lots of people think, well, surely if God is God, why did he not just say, okay, guys, that's it, we'll start again, and I'll forgive everything, and that's it. And lots of people would have that kind of approach, but as you go through the scriptures, you see that God has to work to a structure, and that's what we're trying to see. And you remember last week, um, I'll show some, remember I talked about how God acts and there's a revelation, then people have reflection on that revelation, and then they begin to write it. And we looked at that kind of idea, but remember one of the revelations that God gave to a man called Moses, who was high up in the Pharaoh's court, who knew the, he was quite intelligent for all the stuff that was going on at that, his time of life. Um, he was a man who took up a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he came back with revelation. And he talked about eventually in a garden, God had created there were two trees, a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil, remember. And what I said was the consequences of the tree of knowledge when people took it was separation or what we call dualism. And that separation was from God, ourselves, from one another, and also from creation. And then we saw that Really, human beings sought to solve that problem through religion, psychology, politics, climate concerns. And remember, I mentioned the whole idea that at one time we used to have a guy with a, a, a soapbox thing round or, or a, what was it, a banner type on his chest or that saying, the end of the world is nigh. Remember that? And now, oh, earth is a religious nut. Now we've just transformed all that to... Things like just stop oil. If you don't do it, then the end of the world is nigh. But for the Christian, ultimately, God has control and God is working out a purpose. But remember, Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils, have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And they ended up the consequences and the broken cisterns is that a man called Solomon talked about, when I surveyed all my hands had done, what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Doesn't make sense. What's the point of going on? And that was the kind of thing we were looking after. And I ended with this slide, the cross, God's decisive move, where God decides to checkmate humanity. Right? Checkmate the structures that have been formed and checkmated, and it's going to be in the cross. Remember this, right? This is what happened in the book of Genesis. The serpent comes to him and said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be, very important, 
like God, knowing good and evil. If it was given to us as revelation now, it probably would not have been in the form of a serpent. It would have been probably something like this, of a, a shady character who wants to come. But notice what the composition of what was said to Eve. And the composition was this. First of all, question God. Did God really say? Nah, nah not really. Secondly, there was a great promise of immortality. You'll not die. And fourth, third rather, you will be like God. And this last one, knowledge as a source of life. And that was the four constituent components of what we call the lie. And that's a lie that every human being is baptized into once uh, they're born. They're going to be baptized into this where there's going to be a questioning of God. It's going to be even the belief we're going to live forever. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was amazed because um, I, I remember I was used to do a lot of going into old folks' homes and being with them, and I loved it and everything. But I was always amazed how many really never asked the basic questions of life, even though they knew they only had a couple of years to go. That's because something's at work in us. Ah, it'll never happen to me type thing. And, and as we all know, death's got a bad habit of interrupting life, hasn't it? That's just fact. You will be like God. You will be like God. Most of us act as though we're the final arbiter in every situation. Husbands with wives, wives with husbands, right? Why is there always arguments? Because both have a God-like propensity. It's locked into us. And that's a key thing. And knowledge, if we just get the right knowledge, that's going to be the source of life. Now, that's been the, the process, the structure that has come into humanity, into human beings, and they're living together. And that is basically what happened, the lie. Now, what is important about this when we come to, to, to Jesus, we're going to see how Jesus did the exact opposite. Right, that's very important. Writing to the church in a place called Philippi, Paul talks about Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here in the life of Jesus, it's obedient. He obeys what the Father says. That's important. Secondly, he chose death. 
Yeah, she chose death rather than the immortality that was in the lie. He emptied himself. Being equal to God, he did not grasp at it, but made a choice to empty himself. And God raised him up. Now, if you put the two together, you'll notice the composition of the lie. Did God really say, Jesus is obedient to what he believes God has told him? Secondly, you will not die. Jesus chose death. Are you getting this? Are you beginning to see this? Yes. See this contrast here? This is why we say Jesus was different. This is why in all the temptations and everything, Jesus is always making decisions. He's choosing to eat of the fruit of the tree of life and not the fruit of, of knowledge, the fruit of, of evil, good and evil. Notice that. You will be like God. That's what it was, wasn't it? And what did Jesus do? He emptied himself. I have every right to be like God. But he emptied himself. And this fourth thing, the source of life is not going to be knowledge of good and evil, but the source is going to be the tree of life that God will raise him up. Now, you've got to understand this structure. It's flowing through there that Jesus is making the choice. This is why, you know, God comes to us in Christ. It's called the incarnation. This is why it's not a human being. Remember, we saw the different things, the dualism, you know, the, the separation from God, create religion, separation from ourselves, the old counseling, psychological, medical kind of stuff going on. And separation, but no. Jesus chose not to live out of that. Jesus chose to live out of the tree of life for a reason. And the reason is this, that one day he's going to invite you into himself. <laughs> and in that invite, you're going to live out of his source that he did the thing. So, how does that work out? Well, remember... Where did the temptation come, first of all? Where did God really say? It was in a garden. Yes? Keep, no. Say yes, nod your head, right? Just be as though you're one of these dugs at the, the back of a motor car and just, just nod your head. Just I know you're still there with me, right? In the Bible, it tells us there's a garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means simply an oil press. And for Jesus, it was a struggle of choice. That's important. Where was the decision made not to obey God? In the garden. Where's the crucial decision made for Jesus to take the steps to the cross? It's going to be in a garden. And he's going to struggle. Because we, we read in that, in Matthew, Jesus went with them, that's his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. What do you think that means? If you were doing it in our language, you would say, I feel like topping myself. That seems harsh, doesn't it? That's what the scripture said. Jesus said, I really feel like just ending it all. My soul is sorrowful unto death. You ever thought of Jesus like that? Have you ever thought, why? Because it's this incredible struggle. Did God really say? And it's crunch, it's hinging on that. All the stuff he's been getting, he says in the book of John, he says that when he heals in that, all he does is he sees what his father's doing and he obeys it and does it. And the life of obedience comes to this point where he feels like just, I could just kill myself. Because he's coming to this point where humanity fell and he has to make a decision. This is called the Passion of Christ. And it contains Gethsemane, the cross, and also the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But everything is interlocked. Everything depends on A happening so that B can happening, so that C can happen, so that A, B, C, D, E can happen. Right? And that's a big challenge. And notice Gethsemane it's an oil press. And what, what, how did they press it? You know, they're, they're squeezing it. They bring out the oil, squeezing. Gethsemane, that's what it means. And here's the squeezing of Jesus, in a sense. Remember it said in Philippians, he was obedient. He had to fight the lie. Did God really see? And if you understand that, you'll understand why he talks about your will be done. Because it's not just his own personal. It's now the struggle in humanity. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Did God really say? Big, big challenge. That's it. And he came to his disciples, found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What you have said... I will believe. And that is the beginning of the crumbling of this edifice that's in the human being of what's called the lie. You see, it, it, it's really interesting. And in, in A, they have a whole language, but one of the things was grandiosity, right? And, and you go through the 12 steps and you deal with grandiosity. And that grandiosity is basically based on the idea you think you're God, you think you know everything, but you don't. 
bottom line. You don't. That's why your life's a mess. You don't. And it seeks to deal with that. And, and basically, this is the beginning of dealing with that. When Jesus said, your will be done, it is a recognition that God is one in control. And what he has said, he has said for our good. See, in the first um, temptation, when the serpent says to Abe, it's all about based on the idea that somehow God's going to cheat you. Somehow God is going to not do what's best for you, but he's really got to steal from you. And I'm sure everybody here, like me, struggles at that times. When you're confronted with the, what the Father wants, there's this sense, oh no, I think I'm, I'm going to be left out. I'm going to be cheated. But your will be done is based on a simple belief that the Father is doing the best. And you accept that. And that's a challenge. Well, we know that Jesus went to Calvary, but let me just give you a wee thing why we call it Calvary. A lot of people, Christians, don't know this. But Aramaic Golgotha, the place of the skull. It says when Jesus was tried and he carried the part of the cross and, and he went, went to the place to be crucified. They crucified, and interesting, the Bible still retains the Aramaic word Golgotha. And we believe it means the place of the skull. Now, in the Greek, they don't use this a lot, but cranion, that's where you get the cranius, you know, that kind of thing. But this is the important thing. In the Latin, they translated cranion Golgotha as Calvaria. And we get the English word Calvary. And what Calvary basically means is an attempt, the place of the skull. Now that's important because when we come to asking ourselves the question, why was Jesus crucified at the place of the skull? Remember Paul writes to the church and said, at the right time, God sent his son. Right? This is all meticulously planned. It's not an accident. Jesus is in a garden where he's being squeezed to the point there's a choice between obeying the Father or disobeying. It's not an accident. And it's not an accident that when, when the ten, first temptation happens, it's not an accident that you will then know good and evil. In other words, knowledge. And where do we hold our knowledge? Where? In our head. In the cranium. In the skull. And so is it an accident that Jesus is crucified at the place where human beings think it all through. Is that an accident? Or is that just simply a coincidence? The second thing, why was Jesus crucified on a tree? Why did they not just simply stone him? Right? They could have done that. Remember, there was often the woman caught in adultery came there and they all came with their stones ready. To, could have stoned Jesus. 
Why was he crucified? Why did he have to be crucified by, say, the militaristic power? Because if you look at the cross, you've got the religious power, the Pharisees are there, you've got the military power of the time Rome, and you've got even economic power because you know what they're doing at the foot of Jesus' cross? Can you remember? They start throwing dice. Start first episodes of capitalism, I suppose. Is that all an accident? There's an accident that God said in the revelation to Moses, there's a tree of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A tree, a tree. And Christ is crucified at the place of the skull and he's crucified on a tree. You see the films where Jesus is carrying the big cross. Probably that's not true. He probably carried the part that he was going to be crucified on. And there are obviously at this place, places where just perhaps it was, I, nobody really knows, but perhaps it was part of trees just cut down so the part would fit on it. But Jesus has to die on a tree because a tree is a problem. The tree is a problem, the knowledge of good and evil. Are you still with me? Yes. Why did Jesus enter into the experience of forsakenness? He quotes Psalm 21, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sambakthani, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus always spoke about God as Father, didn't he? He didn't say on the cross, Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He says, God. And that's a human experience. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus is entering into what we call the human condition. And remember we saw in the tree, the consequences of the tree of good and evil, that there would be a separation from God. And Jesus enters into that. He doesn't pray. He eventually says, Father, forgive them. But he quotes the psalm of the human being. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perplexing situation that all of us face, and even in our prayer life, even as Christians, where are you? <laughs> I need you. And Jesus enters into that experience. It enters into it because that is the experience that you and I have. Where are you, God? Where are you? And the third thing, why did Jesus wear the crown of thorns? I alluded to it last week. Remember, remember after the, the sin of, of eating the tree, the fruit of the tree, God curses God curses the ground. And he says to Adam, you will eat of the thorns, the thistles. The whole idea of your meaning and purpose in life, the works of your hand, is always ultimately going to produce thorns. Because it's good and evil now. And you know this yourself, that even all the good things we start off with and that so often can turn 
and in the end it produces very little. Remember one time I had the illustration of a man climbing a ladder. And we all climb ladders, but what happens? What happens if the ladder's against the wrong wall? <laughs> and it doesn't lead anywhere but just simply to the brick wall. And that so often is the experience of human beings. Total and absolute frustration. And Jesus wears the crown of thorns. I hope you're getting this, really, that this is not... It doesn't just happen. There's a script at play here that God, in one sense, is undoing everything that emerged out of this decision that's locked into the human being, that's locked into you, that's locked into me. And Jesus, did Jesus take my place? Yes. How did he take my place? Did he say, well, I'm standing here, I'm on the cross for Sandy Weddle? No. He took my place because he took the place of humanity. He took the place of everything. He took the place of what it is to be squeezed till you've got nothing left. He took the place of, of being crucified in the place of the skull where even all our knowledge and all that ultimately fails us. And he, he takes his crucified in the tree so that the tree of Calvary now becomes a life, the tree of life. And all this is all so important. And he enters most of all, and I think this is a forsakenness, because most human beings have what somebody once called an orphan spirit. An orphan spirit. We're going through the whole of life, and all that's happening is that basically... We're looking for our Father. We're looking for God. But we can't find Him in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can only find Him in the tree of life. And God has placed that tree of life at this place called Calvary. This is what Paul wrote. He said, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And he condemned sin in sinful man. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It's what Helen read today. So that in him we might become what? Righteousness of God. Wonderful. Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Wow. Great stuff. The response to the cross is always going to be threefold. It's either going to be a stumbling block it's either folk are just, I can't get my head around it. It's either going to be foolishness. Ah, that's nonsense. And most people who dismiss the cross have no concept of what we've been learning or teaching here. No concept that this is something that flows 
through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and eventually finds its end at this place called Calvary. But it can be the power of God. And that's what Paul says. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Incredibly important. And so on the cross, you've got to understand that there's an exchange going on. God is calling the end of one system in order to initiate and inaugurate a new system. And it's going to be encapsulated by a simple phrase, in Christ. We're going to do that next week. Look what it means to be in Christ. The old order is coming to an end. At the cross, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the new order begins. And it's going to be rooted in this idea of being in Christ, which is essentially an exchange. An exchange. So, what does exchange? Well, it was punished that we might be forgiven. If there, I'm honest, if there was one thing that over 38 years as a minister that always made me pull my hair out, right? It was... It was when I was dealing with people who had been Christians for yonks and who would say to me, I'm not sure if God loves me. And you know, I want to scream. Because if you even understand a fraction of what I've been saying here, does God love me? You know, in this whole thing, you've done nothing. <laughs> In this whole ending of the old order to begin the new order, you've done nothing. And yet, now, it's pretty natural because I can understand how folk can say, I wonder if God was me. But see, if you understand what's going on at the cross, it's an irrelevant question. It's irrelevant because God has showed his love, as we'll see next week, that while we were sinners, Christ die for When your life was a mess and when you were a basket case, Christ died for you in order to bring you back to God so that you might have a relationship with him. So we was punished that we might be forgiven. Next one I'll get here. He was wounded that we might be healed. You see, when we talk about Jesus becoming sin and taking sin and that on himself, we're really talking about the, the Jeremiah thing. Remember, my people have committed two sins. Remember I said how Jerusalem at the time was debauched. There was hundreds and hundreds of sins, but there was only two sins that the prophet was told by God. And the sins were simple You've forsaken God as a source of life and you've created cisterns, your own cisterns, your own sources of life. On the cross, Jesus is dealing with that. 
He's dealing with the source of sin. And he's wounded that you might be healed, that you might, in Christ, as we'll see, come out of everything that's been going on in your life, out of the broken systems of your life, out of eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil, out of eating all that, take you out of that and be healed. That's the exchange that's happened at Calvary. He was made sin that we might be what? Righteous. If, if you have one, or I have one criticism of the evangelical church, which in part, 100%, is over the last couple of hundred years, we've been sin conscious. Imagine how it would be if we'd been righteousness conscious. <laughs> Imagine if you came to church in the morning, not held down by, oh, I've done this, I've done that, but imagine how you'd be if you came back. It doesn't matter what I've done. In Christ, God has forgiven me. And all I need to say, Father, I'm really sorry. Let's begin again. Because I am righteous in Christ. I don't have to go through all the agony. Woe is me. Paul said in, in Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We're going to see that. That actually how you view sin becomes totally different. Why? Because you're righteous. You may not feel it. You may not do it. But that's your essence now. You are righteous. And he tasted death. That we might taste life. Everybody, you know, I'm getting all my stuff on. One of the phrases I dislike is when I hear folks saying, well, this is for people of faith and people who have no faith. I have yet to meet someone who has got no faith. I've never met them. Every human being has faith in something. When I took funerals at Daldowie, I just saw faith. The faith wasn't rooted in that Christ has died, Christ has risen, but it was rooted in, ah, well, we're all joke Thompson's wains and I suppose one day we'll all be together. And it just doesn't matter or else folk would really just not believe anything, but they had faith in their unbelief. <laughs> Everybody has faith. Jesus tasted death so that you might have life. Life in all its fullness. Is anybody getting excited does anybody say, put on that, jumping up and down, and let us get started? Does nobody feel like that at the moment? Nobody feel like, put that on and let's just go. Jesus wants the starch out of us, doesn't he? Because if all this is true, wow. And the last one here, and Paul alludes to it in one of his letters, he became poor so that we might become rich. Phenomenal, isn't it? All these things. Do you want to, we're going to sing our final song, and I, and I want to just blend it all together. I'll get my guitar, and before we sing it, 
We'll all stand, and I want us to read out that together, okay? As a confession of the great exchange that has happened at Calvary, which means the place of the skull, the great thing, and how the tree that Jesus is crucified on, the tree becomes the source of all life.